Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bible open to 1 Kings chapter 3, and then we're going to go New Testament about halfway through and go to the Apostle uh, J- to James, the letter of James, excuse me, the epistle of James, letter, James's letter to the church. Um, and we're going to spend the rest of our time there. First, we'll work through 1 Kings chapter 3. Have you ever heard the name Ken Jennings? Ken Jennings. None of you watch Jeopardy? Useless knowledge? Win lots of money? Great. I had one hand. I see that hand, brother. Okay. Ken Jennings won 74 games on Jeopardy. That's a lot. I mean, I'd be lucky to make it through the first round. But his total winnings at that point, at the end of that streak, were $2.5 million. That's a lot of money. Since then, he's amassed over $4.3 million from Jeopardy. And I think now maybe he is one of the new hosts after Alex Trebek passed away. There's another fellow by the name of Brad Rutter. He started winning in the year 2000. And he has won a total of $4.9 million. Then the most recent winning streak, James Holzhauer, had a streak of 32 weeks in a row winning. And he, titled, and, uh, he totaled $2.9 million during his streak. And he actually holds the record for the most, won, uh, most money won in one episode, $131,000 in one episode. But that's not where we're going because you can have all the intelligence and smarts in the world and be as lost as a goose. Um, it's because it's not about how much you know, it's about what you do with it. And when we look at Solomon, what he's got is a lack of wisdom in which he goes to the Lord and he prays for wisdom. Solomon is that next king for Israel. And there's a difficult transition from David into Solomon's reign. That's the first two chapters of 1 Kings. Uh, but then once we get to chapter 3, he is set, he's established And we pick up there in verse 3, if you would stand with me as I read. I'm going to read down to verse 15. He's off to a good start because verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this 
your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word this morning. And as I often pray, what we do not know, Father, teach us. Father, where we lack wisdom, I pray you would grant that to us. We just confess that we do lack wisdom so often. And Lord, we, I pray that we would remember the command of Scripture, that we are to turn to you, Father, and ask for that wisdom. Lord, what we have not, Lord, we pray that you would provide us what we are not yet, that you would continue to work on our hearts and make us for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Well, we talk about wisdom this morning. I'll have to confess I struggled with this one because I don't feel like I'm one of those guys that's very wise. Um, sometimes I can be a wise guy, but not full of wisdom. Um, and, and so I just wanted to approach it how I had to approach it this, this week in saying, what is it? Wisdom, what, what does that look like? What would Forrest Gump's mama say? <laughs> She'd have a take on it because she had a take on everything. But uh, I, I referenced, I Googled wisdom, what is it? I searched uh, dictionaries and all kinds of things and came up with some, a couple of uh, items for your, your thought this morning and just to get your reaction. One is this, age is a very high price to pay for maturity. How about that? Here's one in honor of school. If the number two pencil is the most popular, why is it still number two? Some of you will get that later. If you try to fail and succeed, which have you done? Pontificate on that, if you will. Why do you press harder? Come on, men. This is you. Why do you press harder on the remote when you know the batteries are dead? Guilty. Guilty. You have the right to remain silent because anything you say will be misquoted and used against you. <laughs> I got an amen from the pastor in the crowd. All right. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is not for you. And uh, from a church member this week out of, uh, out of my small group uh, that we get together once a week, uh, he said his mama used to say this, or excuse me, his mother, he didn't call her mama, his mother. He said, mama used to say, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable. Pretty smart. Wisdom is knowing not to put that tomato in a fruit salad. There you go. A biblical definition of wisdom. The quality, here, here it is. The quality of discerning what is true, being able to know what is true, what is ethically right, what should be done then in light of that in different situations. It involves knowledge and the ability to use that knowledge, to put that knowledge into practice. 
When we're thinking about biblical wisdom, we're thinking that it is going to assume righteous behavior. Biblical wisdom will never lead you into sin. No, that would be wrong. It will assume kindness. It will assume faithfulness to the Lord. And it will assume loyalty and trust. Proverbs 14, 16 says, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. It is something that wisdom men and women have searched for for centuries. We've got people like Confucius and maybe some others, Plato, Aristotle, the great philosophers that we uh, have all been uh, talked to in school on some level. It's something that people get on TV and think they've got it all together and spout out useless wisdom and knowledge. But when we are looking for it, we have to remember that wisdom is only found in its fullness in the triune God and in his word. That's where wisdom is complete. That's where it is in full. And that's where we find it. True wisdom. Tony Murata is a pastor currently, and he writes a great deal, but he offered six dimensions of biblical wisdom that I found helpful, and I wanted to share these with you, and they're on your, your handout. You get to fill in the blanks. So the first one was, he said, wisdom has a worship dimension to it. So as we're thinking, what is biblical wisdom? We want to remember that worship has a di- uh, excuse me, wisdom has a worship dimension. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 tells us the fear of the Lord. That's the starting place for wisdom. Not just afraid and terror, but more so in awe and reverence of God, of his omniscience, his omnipresence, in everything that he is, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. He's got it all. And when we see that and we step back, we're like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he stepped back. He's in this throne room and the glory of God is filling the temple and he's in awe of that moment. And it brings him, of course, the confession of sin and God's presence. But the fear of the Lord is a starting place for wisdom. It acknowledges that God has good intentions, that his purposes are right. That when it comes to wisdom, that it's produced by God's word or it's provided there by God's word. And when we come to him in worship, it makes us receptive then to the wisdom of God. When we acknowledge who he is and in awe of him. And then the other side of that is if you don't worship the right and real God, then you're not going to be wise according to scripture. You're a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we have to remember that. Secondly, wisdom has an insight dimension. That wise people have insight into spiritual truth. The New Testament tells us that It is the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes and opens our hearts to receive that truth, to grant us that wisdom. We're going to get to the New Testament here in a little bit, but that's also another dimension to biblical wisdom. Third, that wisdom has a discernment dimension, that a person full of the wisdom of God that has gone to him confessing that they lack, then being filled uh, by God's wisdom, is, is a person that can read the situation. They, they've perhaps experienced, but more so God's presence. They can read the situation and make the right decision, not based, on, not based on experience, but rather based on God's word. What's the right thing according to the word of God? Fourth, wisdom has a moral dimension. Well, we are faced with purity issues all day long. We are constantly bombarded 
by issues of morality. And it's not just in, 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 in uh, sexual immorality. There's all kinds of other ways that we are bombarded. We're asked to cheat. We're asked to cut corners. We're asked to do certain things. And, and, and we have to understand that there's a moral side to wisdom, and we need to follow that, that wisdom and purity go together. And that the wise person, the person who's asking God, seeking God for that wisdom, is the person who has discretion. He's able to make that decision. Wisdom also has a justice dimension. We'll see that played out in the second half of 1 Kings chapter 3, where the two prostitutes come before Solomon. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But there's that justice side to it. And then finally, wisdom has a skill dimension. You remember the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there's the wise builder and a foolish builder. What did the wise builder do? He heard the teachings, he took them to heart, and he did what he followed. He built his house on the rock, which is the teaching of Christ in that passage. And then you got the foolish builder who built his house on what? The sand. Kind of made me wonder about the house I live in because everything around here is built on sand. Okay. <gasps> but here we go. The wise builder. There's skill in this. There's a skill dimension to this. Skillful in building. Building the life. Building the family. Building the church. Building all of those things that God has a hand in, but yet he uses us to put those pieces together because we are living stones made up of a larger foundation of Christ. So we look at Solomon's dream and we think about his prayer for wisdom. We, he, he's at this place. He's got a great start in verse 3. He loves the Lord. He's walking in the statutes of David, his father, which was a, a key connection there. That As long as Solomon is doing that, God is there. God's blessing. Those are all tied together. He's making offerings. He's making sacrifices to the Lord. And then God appeared to him in this dream. It was, a, it was in this moment, a great start for Solomon. He's kind of already stumbled a little bit because if you go to the beginning of chapter 3, he married a foreign, uh, a foreign woman from Egypt, the, the, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter, which Scripture expressly stated not to do that. And that will be Solomon's downfall eventually, that he's marrying uh, foreign women and he's not sticking with the Israelite women and he's building temples to their gods and it's pulling Israel apart. That's his downfall, right? But at this point, he's, he's still with the Lord. He is loving the Lord. He is walking with the Lord. And then he has this dream in verse 5 where God appears to him and God says, ask what I shall give you. Ask what I shall give you. I mean, yes, Lord, I will. I'll go ahead and take that new truck today. And Lord, if you wouldn't mind putting a nice boat behind it, I'll take that. Oh, no. That's the significance of Solomon's life is that he gets this question from the Lord. Solomon what would you pray for? Ask me, and I'll give it. That word ask and give, they're used five times in this passage. It's, this, this is such a moment of prayer and, and significance for Solomon. What, what will he do? I think so many of us would probably take the opportunity to ask for all the stuff we think we're missing out on. Or for God to fix all the problems that we're having, or at least we think we're having. Solomon's request is very different. In fact, if you pick up in verse 6, you'll see that his request is rooted in the gospel. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 6. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. 
And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on this throne today. His response is rooted in God's promise to have a son, a son of David, sit on the throne. Solomon is sitting back and he's marveling at God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love toward his father David, which now is going to be aimed at him as king of Israel. How much more should we pray every day of our lives by starting like this? You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant. Solomon understands, he's, he's got a grasp of God's kindness, of God's steadfast love and his mercy. That kindness, that mercy of God was a staple in David's life. That's how he made it, even when he royally messed up with Bathsheba and had her husband killed and then took her on as a wife. Even then, when the prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, you are the man that has sinned. You are the reason David humbled himself and he came back to the Lord and he prayed, he confessed his sin. He asked God not to remove the spirit from him. He asked God to restore the joy of his salvation. And in that moment, God did do just that. God's kindness and his steadfast love toward David is clearly all throughout David's life. Solomon understood that. He's grasping that. And he approaches God with this question. Uh, God has said, pray, pray and ask whatever you want. And, and he is approaching God that way. That's, where, that's how you know he grasps the gospel. That's how you know it's rooted in the gospel. Because a prayer that's not rooted in the gospel is saying, Lord, give me what I want. Give me all the stuff I need. Fix my problems. Rather than saying, God, because of your great and steadfast love. He understood his weakness as well. If you look at verse 7, Solomon knows his weakness. You have made your servant king in, in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Acknowledging here that he lacks the knowledge, the know-how to be the king of Israel. To come out and come in, is, it, it was a reference to the time when the kings would go off to war and when they would come back. The time to, to go and, and when to act. Because, God, because of you, your, your people are great, God. This is a huge task because you have made this people so marvelous, so great. And you know, you see everything's pointing back to God's goodness, God's steadfast love. And then in verse 9, he just confesses what he needs. In verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. I need what I don't have, and I can only get it from you. I need an understanding mind so that I serve well that I can discern between good and evil, right? He's asking for a listening heart. Some translations use there that phrase, a listening heart. He didn't ask, Lord, would you help me to reach my best life now and, and my fullest potential? I want to be the greatest king ever and I want to amass all the wealth and all the, oh, how about the prayer of Jabez? Would you expand my territory, Lord? And uh, No, he didn't do any of that. He just rooted in the gospel of God's steadfast love Lord, I need what I don't have. I need, I need a discerning heart, a listening heart, so I can rule and I can serve well. That listening heart would enable him to discern what was right and wrong and lead Israel in the path forward. You see, the heart is the center of our being. It's, our, it's the center of our mind, our thoughts, our will, our emotions. He wanted his heart, his mind, 
to be influenced then by the presence of God and the steadfast goodness of God, the steadfast love of God, and it would please God to ask, for him to ask this. It pleased God. Look at God's response in verses 10 and following. Friends, we need to remember that God delights in his people when we go to him in prayer. He delights when you come to him and ask him that he knows, he knows what you need, right? But he delights in that moment. I read a meme this week uh, from uh, a ministry called Truth for Life, which is Alistair Begg's ministry, and it uh, just simply said, surely it cannot be that prayer was a necessity for Jesus and simply an unexplored activity for me. We've got to tap into that relationship. We've got to dive in to that time of prayer because God delights in that. He delights in hearing from his children. And you know that God loves to hear from you. He loves it when we say, God, I'm lacking. God, I lack this. And you are the only one who can provide. It's the prayer of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And dealing with anxiety and worry, Jesus says, don't worry. You're worried about all this other stuff, but what are you going to do about it? Rather, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will take care of you. Your calling, your job, your purpose is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And see God's response here. Solomon asked for the essential thing, the heart thing. Give me a listening heart, a discerning heart that I may judge well and, and discern well. God granted that. God also granted the things he did not ask for. And giving Solomon that listening and discerning heart, God had granted him the ability to rule well. That was God's will. It was his choice to give Solomon more than he requested. God delights when our prayers are not self-centered, but rather service-centered. If you are praying, God, I lack this, and your mindset is not so that you can go and amass more things, but rather, God, I'm lacking this so that I can serve you better, I need this so I can serve more. I need this so that I can love my neighbor. I need this so that I can uh, uh, walk in kindness and uprightness and be, and, and be wise so that you get glory for it. He loves those kind of prayers. He delights it when we're not self-centered in our prayer life, but rather service-centered. And he would rather Solomon serve God and serve God's people well. It shows you where his heart is. This is not a, a method or to manipulate God in your prayer life, you know, so that you can go get that new whatever you're after. But it's that Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek his presence. Seek his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. That's the kind of prayer that Solomon is praying. So that's Solomon's story. What about the rest of the Bible's instructions for us? James, the... James, the brother of Jesus, had something to say to us. God has given us all the wisdom we need in his word. And there are a couple of places along the way that point us back into the word of God. Psalm 119 is certainly one of those where the psalmist is um, uh, he's under attack. He's got affliction upon him, and he's constantly going back to the word of God. Another one of these places, though, is James. So turn there to James chapter 1. James, a servant of God brother of Jesus and leader of the church in Jerusalem, wrote an incredibly practical letter for us. If you ever want to know, Man, what am I supposed to do as a believer? Read the book of James. You'll find out. <laughs> but this is what I would say is a biblical and practical pathway for receiving wisdom and knowing when we need it. So verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, 
let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded man. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Again, a basic understanding of biblical wisdom is the ability to apply what you know from the Lord. Solomon, again, a great example. Going back into that story, right after verse 16, where I left off reading, Solomon is approached as the king of Israel by two prostitutes. One of these women had lost their child. The other one still had her child, but there's a dispute. The one who lost is trying to get the other lady's baby. She doesn't want her to have a child. So they come before the king. They're both stating, this is my child. And so Solomon, in his wisdom, you remember the story? He said, bring me the sword. We're going to cut the kid in half. Each, each lady gets half the baby. Gruesome, right? What a horrible picture. But oh, so wise, because Solomon knew that the real mother would speak up and say, let her have the child. And that's how it decided. That's how it was decided. And from that moment on, all of the people knew how wise Solomon was. So it's putting into practice those statutes and the truth of what we have from God. Well, when we get into the book of James, it is against the backdrop of Solomon's life where he had asked for wisdom. In James's time, now we're thousands of years later here, but or hundreds of years anyway, but in his time, the church was established, but it was facing difficult times, hardship. They were persecuted by Rome, most, most importantly at this point. But they are trying to make it. They're struggling. There's a lot of hardship as the church becomes, the Christians are outcasts. There's just not much going on. In fact, when you read verse 2, you get the picture pretty quick. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why would James write that if the church was comfortable and cushy and doing great? He wouldn't. He's trying to encourage them. you got to count it joy. you got to change your perspective on the trial. Change your perspective on, on the testing. And then he hits verse 5 about wisdom. Discussing our need for wisdom. Wisdom is understanding, right? It's discerning the situation. And godly wisdom is, able to, is a place where we're able to see at least some picture of God's big picture and God's, what, what he's doing from his perspective. We want to be able to see what he's doing. How is God at work and how can I join him is what Henry Blackaby used to say. Wisdom is also guidance. It's the insight the moral dimension. When I'm going through this test, when I'm going through this trial, I need that insight. I need that moral dim- dimension to, to come into, uh, into, into play so that I make the right choices. And the people who read this letter needed to know the right path through the trial. That's, that's the way they would make it. And the right path, of course, is faith, is to continue trusting no matter what's happening. They needed to know the will of God. That early church did so that they would stay on the narrow road following Jesus as the situation with Roman control and persecution only growing in intensity day after day. That's what the church needed. And so James said, count it all joy, brothers. And then if you lack the wisdom and know how to get through this, ask God. Ask God. 
We need that wisdom of God to help us in some of the crazy scenarios that we're facing. No, the Romans are not oppressing us. And at this point, the government isn't either. It could come. It probably will come. But we've got lots of other crazy issues that we have to deal with in our day and time. People have very short fuses these days. I don't know if you've noticed that. You may be one with a short fuse. But it's crazy how quickly people are getting angry and how frustrated people are. And it doesn't matter who you are, you're gonna, you're gonna bear some of that frustration if you make them mad. It's crazy in Solomon's day, it's crazy in James's day, it's crazy in our day, and the crazy isn't going anywhere until Jesus comes back. So how are we gonna make it through the crazy? We need the wisdom of God. We need to do exactly what James is calling us to do here, which is no different than what Solomon did hundreds of years later, earlier, excuse me, which is to ask. Ask. Look at what James says again, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Friend, that just means we have to confess your need. You've got to confess your need. Confess it. James began again. If you lack wisdom, I mean, it's straightforward, right? That's why I love James. He doesn't beat around the bush. There's no great big theological treatise here. It's just, if you don't have it, ask. If you're lacking, ask. It's kind of refreshing. But don't let it be so simple and elementary that you skip over it because you think it's so simple. If it's so simple, then I would just ask, are you struggling today? Could be that you haven't asked for wisdom. But we have to go to the Lord and confess our need for it. It's exactly what Solomon did, and it's what we are actually commanded to do in verse 5. This is not a suggestion, but rather it is a command for us. The truth is we all lack wisdom. We all lack wisdom. It is the wise who realize that they lack wisdom and they know where to turn to find it. The fool said is in his heart there is no God. The proud think they've got it all together, but the man who is wise is also keenly aware that he lacks wisdom and he hits his knees to receive it and to ask for it. That's how we know that wisdom isn't just academic knowledge or intelligence or street smarts. It's tied to God himself. That's why we go to him. That's why we ask the Lord. Let him ask God. It is the wisdom in which he always chooses the best goals according to his purpose, according to his plan, which means that his plan of redemption is wisdom. The very plan that he laid out for Christ to come and to die for our sins and to be raised on the third day and then to come back again someday for the church. That plan of redemption is wisdom, but the world calls it foolishness. But to those who are being saved, the Bible says it is the power of God. And Christ Jesus then is the wisdom of God. Friends, we have a need for wisdom. But the world has a narrative that constantly feeds us that we are to not admit our shortcomings. We are to not admit our lack of anything. In fact, we'll cut corners to try to gain more, and thus we must not demonstrate anything other than self-sufficiency. Trust your gut. Trust your instincts. Lean on your own understanding. But that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says to not lean on your own understandings, but rather to trust the Lord. Well, what does your heart say? Right? Well, the heart, the Bible says, is deceptive. So all the things the world is trying to tell us, this is where you find wisdom. This is how you find know-how. This is how you put it all together. The Bible says, really, that's just a bunch of hooey. 
The Bible, God's word calls you to admit your need. And to that, we say, yes, Lord, if I lack wisdom, I do lack wisdom. Then it calls me to ask God. In asking and going to him saying, Lord, I lack wisdom. Yes, I am confessing a limitation. And you'll come out of this time of trial and testing with an awareness of your inability to make it through the trial without faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You are limited. We are limited by design, by creation. We are limited, finite beings. God is not. Therefore, we trust him and we need him. And he has made that way possible through Jesus Christ. When you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and that testing comes, you will be aware that you know almost nothing You won't know the why, you won't know the how. And you may not ever know the why or the how. And you're faced with these three alternate pathways. Which one will you take? They all look good, they all look right. Friend, in that moment, God has made it that we turn to him. That's the right thing. That we depend on him, that we trust him. That we stop pretending that we know it all. We turn to the Lord and say, God, you are all I need. Lead me in the way everlasting. We confess our dependence upon God. That word for lack, it means exactly what it says. You ain't got it. You need it. No matter how hard you may try, this lack, this stuff that you're lacking, you will not be able to make up on your own. You will not be able to find it anywhere outside of the word of God. And that is because it is a gift from God that only comes from seeking and asking. So we must ask him for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. When we come to the scripture and we find that, and it says ask, so oftentimes that's synonymous with pray. James is urging you, commanding you to pray when you sense the need for wisdom. It's a present tense verb. So it's not just a one time and done. It's not just come to the altar this morning and pray for wisdom and then you won't need to until next year. I'll tell you when you're going to need it. You're going to need it when you walk out the doors, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to work, when you go in the classroom. When you go to the doctor's office, you're going to need it. That's where we need the wisdom of God. It's a daily practice. Lord, I'm lacking in this wisdom. Help me. Help me. A continual practice in our life. If we want to, if we want wisdom, we must continue to ask. Seek first the kingdom of God. You remember what Jesus said, again, just before he talked about the wise and foolish builder in Matthew chapter 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Salvation? Yes. Wisdom? Absolutely. They're there. Ask and it will be given. How often are you asking for wisdom when you're praying? What about your listening skills? Listen, when we turn to Jesus in our trials and our struggles in everyday life, we've got to ask for wisdom. And so oftentimes you might just be like me and say, Lord, get me out of this situation. Just rescue me. When the reality is that the next step of faith is is that he's waiting to give you wisdom to help you navigate the situation. He's given you everything you need right here in his word, but you're not listening. You just want him to get you out of the situation, but but you're not asking for wisdom. What's the right way forward? Lord, give me the wisdom because I'm young and I don't know. 
I need wisdom, Lord, to serve you well and to stay and to walk. Lord, grant me the eyes to see how you're seeing this. Help me to know the truth. Help me to live according to the truth. Lord, grant me a discerning heart that I may walk in your ways and bring you glory. When we ask and pray, we're acting in obedience. Did you know that? When you pray, this is a command. This is in the imperative here. When we pray, we're acting in obedience. We're commanded to ask. So it's not a, now it's not a matter of want to. It's a matter of will you. It's an issue of obedience or disobedience. Friends, come to the Lord with confidence because you are coming in obedience and in faith. And then await his answer. We wait expectantly because God is going to answer. We wait expectantly because he's going to answer in his time. Don't be like the story I read this week from a great Texas Baptist pastor named D.L. Lowry. He, he shared this story about a little lady who stood in front of her house. And in front of her house, there was a great big mountain that blocked her view of everything. But she had read in the Bible and, that if we would ask God, he could remove a mountain. And so she went before God and asked him to remove that mountain right in front of her house. And she went out and addressed that mountain said, be thou removed. She said it in the King James because she thought there was some more authority there. And she went to bed that night, slept wonderful uh, all night long until early morning. And she walked out on her front porch and she hurried out to the door and, and out to the, to the porch. And she'd see whether that mountain was gone or not. But there it was, just as high and rugged as ever. And in disgust, she turned away and said, huh, just as I expected. That could be the way many of us are praying. We ask, but we never expect the answer. And because we're not expecting it, we're not listening. James had a different take on it for us. Quickly, he says in verse 6, um, excuse me, verse 5, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. One, we wait because God is generous. We wait in faith because God is generous. Let him ask God who gives generously. This is an attribute of God. This is one of his characteristics of his generosity, of his goodness. This is what Solomon was leaning on in his response to God's question, what could it, what, pray, pray and ask me for anything. That was his response, the generosity of God, the goodness, the, 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 the steadfast love of God. And he gives he meets our needs, and he does so generously. Second, he said, wait, because God is gentle. Look at verse 5 again. Ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. You know, when you go to the Lord and you, you're confessing your sins, and this is one of them, Lord, I'm lacking wisdom, and I need that. You know he's not up there sitting on his throne saying, you dummy. What took you so long, man? I've been sitting here watching you, flailing about, making fun of you. and you know, He doesn't ridicule us. He's kind. He's loving. This is that, that father who's watching for his son to come down the road and then running. Our God is gentle in that moment, without reproach. God knows you don't know. He knows that you are lacking, and he loves it when you trust him and turn to him, depending on him. He loves that. So we wait for his answer because he is gentle. And then we wait in faith. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That's not the constant waves that beat the shoreline in rhythm, right? Those are, those are things we expect, we see, we can get accustomed to the sound. This is like being out in the gulf with a storm coming and the waves are going every which way. There is no pattern to them. They're swelling this way, they're going that way. There's a blind, blind side coming from a way. You just tossed to and fro by the waves. Double-mindedness, unstable in all his ways. It means the heart, the, the heart, the mind is unstable. One minute they're God-centered, the next minute they're self-focused again. So when you ask, you go to him in faith, trusting that he hears you, trusting that his answer is the best way forward because he is a good father that gives good gifts to his children. And wisdom is one of the best things he could ever give us. Friends, prayer is such a valuable resource in the time of crazy that we're in. It's really our only resource in the daily struggle of following Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the reason we can go to the Lord and, and pray for wisdom. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. And it begins... And it ends really with Jesus. But it begins with knowing and trusting Jesus. Turn over quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 20, chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. If you want to know the wisdom of God, you want to know more about it. You look to Christ. Look to Jesus. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you leave thinking that this is a moral lesson, it'd be more like Solomon, we've missed it. We are called to let the word of God richly dwell in us. Paul calls us in Ephesians chapter 5 to look carefully how we walk. Not as unwise, but as wise in making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Friends, we've got to look to Christ. He's the answer. When we seek first the kingdom of God, guess what we find? We find Christ. When we ask God and we confess, Lord, I'm lacking in wisdom, guess where he's going to point you? Christ. He is the wisdom of God. He came to dwell amongst us. Look carefully how we walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. We live in crazy times. And yet at the end of the day, church, at the end of the day, we can say like Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. When we look to Christ, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. 